I'm Alex Mosed, and welcome to Winner Take All. Back in the Connecticut studio. Good to be back. Got a lot of topics to go over. Starting off with what is going on uh, with this tech IPO market. And that is, um, I think, a question a lot of folks are asking these days. Leading up to the past few weeks, we covered, um, you know, we dove into Airbnb's S1, to Roblox's S1, to DoorDash's S1. Funnily enough, amongst the three of those, uh, Roblox was the stock that I was most excited about. And they <laughs> have decided to push their IPO uh, to early next year. And we're, we're going to come back to that in a second. The first thing, though, is what's going on with Open Door. So, Open Door, we covered back in September. If you remember, Social Capital, Chamath, early guy over at. Um, at Facebook, you know, his his next thing is he's doing all of these SPACs. And what he's doing is to Open Door, he's saying, Hey, Open Door, I'm gonna help you go public in three months, right? September they announced this thing. They're now uh listed on the NASDAQ and currently trading. They're at uh, about 30 bucks a share right now. So in three months, right, you you're gonna have a lot less regulatory scrutiny. I'm I'm gonna give you a, a billion dollars of cash of liquidity. Uh, I'm going to let your employees get, you know, access and monetize their shares and all this kind of stuff, right? So he has a number of these specs that he's working on. You could have gotten in back in, you know, September. You could have gotten in, you know, in the high teens or more, you know, frankly, it started to pick up steam in the in the low to mid 20s. But all the while you knew that the spec was going to work on Open Door. You didn't know exactly where Open Door would price. Um, once it's officially now trading, right? Because the deal could have fell through, which means the SPAC now, you know, doesn't actually have um, a vehicle, a company to attach itself to, right? So there is some risk in there. But if you'd said, yeah, you know, Open Door, and I, right? I mean, I feel confident Open Door is going to be above twenty bucks a share, then you could have made fifty percent uh, if you if you'd gotten in, and and you very well could have easily uh, gotten in at buying that SPAC you know, before this thing kind of opening. But there is some risk inherently in that process as to whether it actually closes. Open door, not a platform business. It is an what they call an iBuyer of homes. So basically you we've seen these models with cars. They just get really good at buying, you know, homes uh or in the car industry, buying a used car, fixing it up and then reselling it, making good margin. That's what open door does. They are really good at uh, using data and market trends to buy homes, fix them up a little bit, and then flip them and make their cut. That's that's pretty much Open Door. We've seen Zillow uh, try to compete with Open Door by launching Zillow Offers, uh, which is Zillow's the platform. Zillow Offers is this linear buying and reselling business that Open Door is doing. We've seen Open Door partner with Redfin, which is like the smaller Zillow platform competitor. Lots of interesting activity in the space. I mean, you would have thought that Open Door would be in a lot of trouble. I mean, maybe initially back when when COVID initially hit, but as we've seen with the just mass exodus out of these highly dense urban populations, uh, you're just seeing people, you know, a flight to the burbs, and uh, you've seen a housing boom and a car boom, which is you know a great kind of overhang to all of the. Uh, Horrible news that is just kind of continuing to come out because of uh, because of Corona makes sense, and I think you know I think 
I think Social Capital and their different SPACs have some pretty interesting you know, deals that, that we'll continue to track here. But that goes back to the initial topic, which is what's going on with these IPOs? Why is the market so hot? Let me show you this clip with, uh, with uh, Brian Chesky, co-founder and, and CEO of Airbnb. Opening price uh, shares indicated to open right now at $139 a share, which is more than double what you priced at. I mean, are you at all concerned about froth? What do you think about that number and the potential uh, that you're leaving billions of dollars on the table? That's the first time I've heard that number. Um, that is, that's a, I, you know, when we, in April, we raised money um, and it was a debt financing, it, 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 that price would have priced us around 30 bucks. So I, I don't know what else to say. It, it's that, that's a, that's a, that's a very, that, that's, um, that is, yeah, I'm very humbled by it. And, um, you know, we know that we're on a very long journey and um, we're, we're going to be very, very focused. It's obviously, today is a very special day for everyone. But, uh, you know, the, the, the higher the stock price, the higher expectations, the harder we're going to be working, obviously. This guy has no, he had, he had no idea what to respond. Um, he was literally speechless. And by the way, what is, uh, what is Airbnb stock at right now? That was on opening bell. That was uh, maybe, let's see. A week or so ago, uh, the stock is even higher now. Look at this. So it opened on the 10th. And it came down a little bit. Didn't go down sub 120. And it's now at buck 65. It's, it's, it's valued at a $100 billion market cap. When he was saying... Uh, that they raised that debt round at $30 a share. That debt round priced them at around $18 billion. Right? It's less than a fifth of, of where their share price is today, like seven months later. So no, I don't think this makes sense on Airbnb. And, 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 and there's something just wonky in the markets. Kind of makes sense when you have the Fed printing $7 trillion uh, and just we have insane stimulus, not to mention we have billions of dollars of stimulus going abroad when we have, you know, Americans and small businesses uh, going out of business and tremendously hurting. I mean, just what is going on with the central government, the central bank right now? It's all kinds of uh, just madness, um, you know, hopefully much of it well-intentioned. But at the same time, just there's a lot of very odd, and peculiar uh, things going on in the markets right now. So I wouldn't touch Airbnb. I, I would not touch Airbnb um, with a 10-foot pole, uh, just like we wouldn't touch uh, what, what is going on with uh, Wish right now. Uh, and, and, and we covered Wish. Uh, let's see where Wish is at. Here's Wish coming down from the opening. Uh, Opened, I think, around, yeah, low to mid-20s here. Um, not bullish on Wish. Just has, you know, 98% exposure to their supply coming from Chinese uh, manufacturers. Not a good place you want to be. We're going to touch on China um, per usual a little bit later on in the show here. But, I mean, if, if Wish isn't up in, a, in, a, in an IPO market 
where literally everything is on fire, where you have Roblox punting. Look at this. You got Roblox punting their IPO because, you know, that's what that lady, uh, the Bloomberg reporter was asking Brian, hey, did you leave money on the table? That's this whole thing about, you know, doing a direct listing, which is Bill Gurley's big thing, um, uh, which is like a reverse Dutch auction, you know, where you you aren't leaving as much money on the table because um, you're not actually raising capital. You're just you're just listing your shares on the public market. It's very different. These IPOs or these SPACs, the company is doing both raising money. You know, it's a fundraising round, and they're listing their shares on the public exchange. So you don't know where the shares going to price themselves at on the public exchange. And I want to raise money, so it's kind of a twofer. The direct listing is is just the former. It's not the latter. It doesn't have the fundraise, but it has the listing of the shares. And then the market figures out right where the share price is. And you could do a secondary, you know, round. You 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 could do a secondary kind of uh, equity issuance and raise capital once once having listed. But but you're going to have less of less of an emphasis on raising capital immediately if you're doing a direct listing. So anyway, long story short, she was saying, hey, well, if you'd price the shares at um, you know, $150 a share, you could have, you could have raised a lot more, um, in your fundraise Airbnb, uh, if you had priced the shares higher, like, did you leave money on the table? And I think what you're finding DoorDash, same deal. You're seeing these founders be like, I have no idea what's going on. And I, great. The market's pricing this way high. Wonderful. But I don't know why the company is valued at this. And these are the founders. You know, these are the best salespeople on the planet. A founder can sell just about anything. And these people don't know how to respond. You've got the founder speechless uh, at what's going on in the market. That's how you know there's some wonkiness in the market. I would not buy in. DoorDash is a little bit more fairly priced, but there's still a lot of inflation on DoorDash. Anyway, Roblox has decided to just punt it all together. Roblox doesn't need the capital as much. I, you know, I'm curious. I wonder if Roblox just says we do a direct listing, but you know, maybe they want capital. But I mean, they're cash flow positive. They're in a great position. They don't really have as much urgency to 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 raise capital as much as a DoorDash or an Airbnb does, right? These companies still um, need capital to grow quite aggressively. And Roblox is a very different situation. They don't really need the capital as much. They've got more flexibility here. So I think they're saying, all right, hey, let's punt. And if we do go public, let's, you know, let's not undercut ourselves. Look at what look at this madness that's happening with these other tech IPOs. And arguably relative to an Airbnb and a DoorDash, certainly relative to a wish, which I'm not too fond of. Um, Roblox is, I would say, the best of the litter. Just if I look at the strength of the business and the need to get capital, they just they don't have it. Um, and they've got a great stronghold on on this kind of development platform metaverse of gaming uh, market that they're in. So, you know, be very wary if, if you're getting into the market right now. Um, that said, I mean, Platt just, Platt just continues. You can't stop. Platt. Look at this thing. It's up 59% this year. Look at this thing. The past month, it's up 9%. The past month. This is the platform ETF, Wisdom Trees ETF. Applico uh, works with WisdomTree to help identify 
What are the platform stocks that go into the index? It's a Wisdom Trees Growth Leaders Fund. This is their Wisdom Trees primary growth fund. It's called Plat. Since inception, it's up 77%. It came out May of 2019. Now, the interesting thing is that um, actually the past few weeks, if you look at Plat, you know, where is this growth coming from? If you actually look at FAMGA, Facebook, Apple, Microsoft, Google, Amazon, their growth actually hasn't been the primary uh, vehicle for why it's gone up, what did I say, 8 9% in the past month. It's actually been the other, you know, 45 stocks or so that make up the rest of the, the basket. You've actually seen just huge, huge gains with Etsy, with um, LendingTree, with uh, Mercado Libre, which is a massive marketplace in Brazil and South America. You've kind of seen... You know, the, the rest of that index really just super supercharge this streak here the past uh the past month or so. So whereas whereas you know the, the FAMGAs of the world, I mean they're I mean they're just they're just the, the multiples are just so crazy. Um and that and and this is me, the platform guy saying they're crazy. But but again, collectively amongst the index, you've now seen the power by saying you got a basket. It's not just FAMGA. It's a basket of 51 currently uh, different platform stocks that you can see and um, are just kind of carrying carrying the tide here. And you can click this button here, view all holdings. And um, you can see they're waiting. You know, you got Visa in here as, as the fifth strongest weight. PayPal, MasterCard, Pinterest, Appian, Snap, Snap's been on fire. Salesforce buying Slack. Slack was in here too. Got a nice little Slack bump. Where's there's Slack? Bam, got a nice little bump there. A little inter-index MA. So, you know, really that push the past month or so is crushing it. Um, yeah. So so anyway, let's keep moving here. And uh Next topic is StockX and Farfetch and Goat and the Real Real all kind of you know track each other in this space. Not same exact catalogs and 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 fit, but similar um, dynamics for the business. StockX just raised a monster two hundred seventy five million dollar uh, round, valuing them at two point eight billion dollars. They have said they're doing three billion lifetime GMV. You know, maybe about a year ago they were saying they they were trending at about a billion dollar, you know, on on a, on a forward-looking 12-month basis. So, pro rata they were doing about a billion dollar run rate GMV. So, you know, in that quarter they did 250 and they kind of extrapolate that out and say, "Okay, yeah, we got a billion dollar GMV run rate." I think they're picking that up. I could see them getting into 1.5 or maybe approaching 2 billion run rate of GMV. Um not necessarily for um for 2020 GMV numbers, but I could see them getting close to a 2 billion run rate GMV. You see, and if you think about the numbers here, they said Q3, they've got $100 million in quarterly gap revenue. So if you got $500 million in GMV and you have a 20% take rate, there's $100 million in revenue. Otherwise, they would need to be taking closer to a 25 or 30% take rate, which is a little high. And they get fees from both the seller and the buyer. 
I would probably peg them around 20%. Um, you know, if you look at the articles, it says 10 to 15. Goes down as you sell more stuff. But then they also get some from the buyer. So if they're at 15%, that means they got to be doing actually north of a $2 billion run rate GMV. They got to be doing closer to $600 million in GMV for that quarter if they're backing out $100 million in revenue. They could also be classifying, you know, the shipping as revenue and so some other stuff. But I, yeah, I think they're maybe $400, $500 million in GMV. Again, I'm not using second measure to track their credit card purchases and, you know, that you could go a lot deeper into that. But they're doing very well. Um, all these kinds of, you know, kind of it's secondhand, but it's it's kind of consignment. You know, it's hard to get inventory. That's really where StockX is focusing. And um, yeah, they're just doing very strong despite, you know, just all the other hardships going on uh, in, in today's world. Big opportunity, I think, to buy to buy this, right? We saw Richma, which owns a bunch of luxury brands, take a, a material stake in Farfetch after really owning Euxton a Porte. Um, Richemont's chairman, you know, penned a very interesting article that we covered on the show just about the kind of that he's seen it for years, the shift to digital and luxury retail. And, you know, he was a little bit slow to catch on to the marketplace thing, but hey, he got there eventually. He, in my opinion, should own Farfetch as opposed to being a strategic investor. But hey, um, and, and owning Euxton, you know, we've always kind of been pro Farfetch, uh, you know, um, more of a, a bear on Ukes because that's the that's the linear model. Farfetch is the marketplace model, and you've clearly seen just these these the marketplace models in luxury goods just you know continue to crush. Whether it's whether it's luxury kind of goods, Farfetch, whether it's kind of sneakers and other kind of you know uh, these boutique items with StockX and Goat, whether it's watches, we're seeing watches take off with watch marketplaces. Lots of interesting activity in this space, and I think. Now, finally, 26 years into Amazon's reign of dominance over retail, finally, the chickens are coming home to roost and the retailers are recognizing they need to own marketplaces. Own the marketplace. They need to either be a strategic investor or acquire. And guess what? These prices are getting expensive. You got back market doing certified electronics refurbished electronics they had a massive raise this year 800 plus million dollar valuation you got you know just a lot of these vertical specific b2c marketplaces i think over the next two years you start to see start to see retailers making selective either investments or acquisitions with these vertical specific marketplaces it's the new version of retail right the stores are literally gone and if you still have enough dry powder left in the tank after after what COVID has taken out of you, you gotta you gotta do digital, and you're gonna have to pay a hefty premium. But that's what happens when you wait 26 years to get on this bandwagon. And I think you're seeing this acceleration of the e-commerce uh, behavior. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna pull up a graph. We're gonna come back to that in a second here. So alternatives to tech monopolies. Uh, we've talked on the show about how just, you know, tech monopoly censorship is unfortunately at an all-time high. It really goes against the very ethos of the business model to facilitate external in innovation, to let creators, if we're talking content and social media platforms, to let creators express themselves and create content. Instead, we've now seen them become 
more and more of an arbiter of of you know their version of truth and um it's gonna backfire applico and winner take all uh the show we're making a concerted effort to support alternative content platforms we are on rumble i think we're still getting the like the rumble unique url but we're on rumble we do not support youtube's kind of very much so fascist uh doctrines on content regulation and content censorship it's just simply not okay and it goes against the very ethos of platforms it goes against the very ethos of what we talk about and espouse on the show simply not okay so we are going to be you know trying to do you know trying to figure out how can we give some preference to the content we put out on rumble over youtube and I don't know. We'll see. Everyone's kind of, you know, everyone's going to have to figure this out as we go. A lot of other creators in the same bucket as us that just, you know, aren't okay with the level of uh, censorship of the producers. Talk about this all the time on the show. That's when platforms hit that monopoly stage of power. They take advantage of the producers, of the suppliers first. It's really not the consumers that are a victim. It's the producers. And that is our, our next topic here. But what are other alternatives to tech monopolies? This other one here is MeWe, uh, which is like a Facebook alternative. It's raised $14 million and it's all about, you know, no ads, no targeting, no newsfeed manipulation. That's the matchmaking algorithm that we spoke about with Tim Kendall, LA-based company advised by the Sir Tim Berners-Lee, a guy who founded World Wide Web and, you know, big on privacy. Other Twitter alternatives you're probably you know you've probably heard of would be Gab and Parler. Uh, both of those have kind of been characterized as like a conservative slant to them, but you know I think in general the reason why they're getting so much traction, I think Parler hit like number one on the App Store or something like these. You know these alternative content platforms are gaining a lot of traction and rightly so because the censorship is just not okay. YouTube alternatives, Rumble. There's also BitChute that's a little bit farther out there for us. We'll see if we make our way over to BitChute. We've talked about DuckDuckGo for a long time uh, on the show as an alternative to Google and Google Search. So we'll keep you apprised. We know what other alternatives come our way. How else winner take all can disseminate our information elsewhere on these alternatives. You know, I tell you right now, if President Trump tweeted 30 minutes earlier on a parlor or or a gab than he did on Twitter, he would single-handedly sink, I think, Twitter's stock price by about 20%. Twitter is stagnant, okay, folks? Twitter's growth, we'll see where their next quarter comes out in the coming weeks here, but Twitter's Q3 performance was abysmal. It was flat. US user growth was flat at 30 million, uh, I think monthly or daily active users. I forget which one. But their active user stat was flat at 30 million in the United States, which is really not good for them. So, and, and that is with them, you know, their product team is doing everything that they can do to juice up that 30 million number, right? To give you a push notification so you come back in the app and, you know, they can, they can get that stat, that 30 million. Um, so that is, that is with a concerted effort that they were able to stay flat at 30 million. They are not in a good situation right now. And they've easily been the most aggressive and the most fascist in their regulation of content on the platform. And, and hopefully it does come back to bite them. 
They also, interestingly enough, have the least monopolistic hold on their user base, right? Twitter, I've talked about. Twitter does not actually fit tech monopolist status. They don't have platform conglomerate um, status. They don't, I mean, 30 million uh, users in the United States, I mean, maybe 10% of the population, right? I mean, they aren't at monopoly um, status by any means. They got a $40 billion uh, market cap. That's actually gone up, surprisingly. Uh, I mean, you can see here, see this November, right? That's when they announced earnings, flat growth. I mean, abysmal. Who reports that as a growth tech stock? Uh, Bam, lost 20% of their value one day. Now they're back. They're actually over where they were. It doesn't make any sense. Twitter hasn't done anything to justify, (laughs) you know, (laughs) going going $52 was where they were before they released their Q3 earnings. Now they're at 55. Doesn't make any sense. Anyway. Anyway. You know what makes sense? This makes sense. Poland is coming to rescue all of us from the insanity of tech censorship. Maybe they watch the show. I don't know. But check this out. The justice minister announces online freedom of speech bill. Hmm. Not even going to try to pronounce this guy's name, but he announced a legal initiative on Thursday aimed at enabling internet users to file complaints against the removal of online posts, as well as the creation of a special court of freedom for freedom of the speech. Freedom of speech. It's exactly what we've been talking about. The aim of the bill was to give internet users the feeling that their rights are protected and that their posts cannot be arbitrarily removed from online platforms. When we say platform monopolies take advantage of producers, of in this case, creators or the suppliers or the producers on content platforms, this is exactly what you're talking about, right? If I want to post where COVID came from or are there aliens and other life out there, and if, and if I offend the WHO or the UN, well, YouTube could take us down, right? And you have no, you have no recourse. You can't do anything. And so what this is doing is saying, well, these platforms need to abide by the same rules as free speech. Well, let me read some more of it, okay? The full name of the bill is the Law on Freedom of Expressing One's Own Views and Searching and Disseminating Information on the Internet. Under its provisions, social media services will not be allowed to remove content or block accounts if the content on them does not break Polish law, right? So if it's uh, harmful, you're harassing someone, you're making a threat of violence, right? These kinds of things, right? Um, versus now, that's what initially we were, you know, the the content platforms were saying that that's what they were taking down, that kind of hate speech, abusive, harassing content. Now it's just pure conjecture. If you have an idea or if you have a topic to discuss and they don't like it, well, you can be kicked off. In the event of a removal or blockage, a complaint can be sent to the platform, which will have 24 hours to consider it. Within 48 hours of the decision, the user will be able to file a petition to the court for the return of access. The court will consider complaints within seven days of receipt, and the entire process is to be electronic. Here's a quote from from this Minister of Justice. Often, the victims of tendencies for ideological censorship are also representative of various groups operating in Poland whose content is removed or blocked just because they express views and refer to values that are unacceptable from the point of the views of communities. We've talked a lot on the show about religious uh, leaders, both Christian and Muslim leaders, being censored quite aggressively by content platforms. 
with an ever stronger influence on the functioning of social media. We realize that it is not an easy topic. We realize that on the internet, there should be a sphere of guarantees for everybody who feels slandered, a sphere of limitation of various content, which may carry with it a negative impact on the sphere of other people's freedom. Uh, But we would like to propose such tools that will enable both one side and the other to call for the decision of a body that will be able to adjudicate whether content appearing on such and on such and such a social media account really violates personal rights, whether it can be eliminated or whether there is censorship, right? So freedom of speech, right? Let's say you're posting content that infringes upon IP. Okay, you got to take that down. So you're harassing, you're attacking, you're abusive, you're going after someone, you're targeting, you're doxing, you're putting someone's personal information up. Okay, you got to take that down. There's precedent for this, right? Freedom of speech. We've talked about this. Um, can you yell fire in a movie theater? Well, if you can go to a movie theater these days, well, no, you can't yell fire. If there's no fire, you can get arrested for that or there's some kind of penalty, right? We have precedent for this. And now and now these content platforms have decided to make up their own rules and and have have they've opened Pandora's box. Once you cross that dotted line, how do you ever put put the box back together? You can't close the box. And uh they should have been smarter about this. If a special court rules in favor of the plaintiff and the internet service does not obey the ruling, it can subject the internet service to a fine of up to basically $2 million. So if they say, hey, you kicked Alex off, you got to give Alex back his account, they don't do it, then YouTube can be fined $2 million. I I think it's great. The EU, uh, Ms. Vestager, has been hinting that they are looking at putting rules and guidance in which actually would be very similar to this, but I think Poland's kind of uh, come out ahead of that. Miss Vestager is, you know, taking some time to to figure out how to how to put this forth, and what she's doing would be kind of for the for the block, you know, for for all of the EU. But it's really great to see certain countries like Poland. You know, it's not exactly like a state in the United States, but you can kind of think of them somewhat that way, right? Where a lot of things that happen at the federal level in the United States. First, are kind of proven out at the state level, and then the federal government can kind of much slow, more slowly adopt what what is what is uh, tried and iterated a little bit more quickly at the state level. So, can Poland, you know, try to lead the charge here and really kind of set a blueprint that then Miss Vestager could then help to bring to the rest of the EU, and could hopefully the United States pick up on this. This um, is is really one of the probably two biggest challenges that we're seeing with content platforms is it's a one-two punch, right? At one end of the spectrum, it's tech censorship. So it's rules and standards, as we talk about in the book. It's, you know, um, how do you curate access and curate usage? It's a tech censorship topic. At the other end of the spectrum, um, and we covered both of these things with Tim uh, Kendall, is the matchmaking side of the equation, right? And what do you do uh, from a from a from the algorithms and the algos that are that are actually designed to uh, push fake information and incendiary triggering information because it it gets the platform's better engagement stats. This certainly helps with with the former, not so much the latter, because um, if anything now, because you have less of an ability to censor creators, presumably you would have more disinformation, more fake information, right? It's going to be harder to censor people uh, with these rules. And then interestingly, what we've seen 
in Australia is they're trying to force Google and Facebook to pay the media companies, which could be another interesting way to tackle this. The 230 thing, I don't know. We'll see if, if Trump stays strong on, on striking down 230, but there's a lot of implications that come with just a wholesale obliteration of 230. The big challenge for, for the media companies to, to hold on to whatever shrapnel uh, iota of um, self-respect that they still have, um, which is pretty much non-existent these days, is they just have a broken business model thanks to Facebook and Google. And so if, if, if Facebook and Google are forced to pay them money, is some of their journalistic standards restored? I don't know. Maybe it's too far gone. But um, this, at least, is, is a step in the right direction. There's no silver bullet to this, clearly. Uh, but I'd love to see what, what Poland is doing here. So, last topic um, is, you know, we've, I've mentioned how Platt has limited its, its foreign exposure and, and, and also its Chinese exposure in the index. Uh, that is a very good move by Wisdom Tree. We've got um, a couple articles here. Let's start. I've got I've got the same article from the U.S. and then I've got the same article as being mentioned from the Chinese press. So you can see a nice little uh, comparison contrast here. Here's this one: Investing.com. Uh, it's actually, you know, this this uh, this news is actually not like widely available. Um, if you search for this, Trump signs bill that could kick Chinese firms off U.S. stock exchanges. Uh, U.S. media companies aren't jumping to cover this. Actually, he's actually signed the bill. This is passed. This is now signed into law. Um, President Trump on Friday, um, December 18th, signed legislation, right? The bill called the Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act that would kick Chinese companies off UX stock exchanges unless they adhere to American auditing standards. Holding Foreign Companies Accountable Act bars securities of foreign companies being listed on any U.S. exchange if they have failed to comply with the U.S. Uh, you know, oversight audit rules for three years in a row. The act would also require public companies to disclose whether they are owned or controlled by a foreign government. Mm-hmm. It isn't going to go into effect right away. It, 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 they have a little bit of a you know a grace period to to get their their books in order so to speak. Now here's from the uh, SCMP. Don Trump signs law. Now this was interesting. Two hundred seventeen Chinese firms with a co- combined market capitalization of over two trillion U.S. dollars are listed on major U.S. stock exchanges. So within three years they need to comply with this rule. They got three years. This is going to cause a lot of issues. It's surprising to me why no one is really covering this. You got 217 Chinese firms. And basically, the reason why this is a big deal is because it's kind of been like a, you know, handshake, wink, wink thing on Wall Street that Chinese companies don't need to, like, these laws aren't new. This law has been around, right? If you're a public company on a US exchange, you gotta have you gotta have um, Sarbanes Oxley. You have auditing requirements. You have all these rules, right? I mean, right? And in in O one Enron, all the right, like there's laws. It's not like we've just created a new law to target Chinese companies. What has happened though is that we've basically kind of given 
you know, given the nod that the Chinese companies don't need to comply with the rules to the letter of the law. We've kind of given them uh, a pass. And, oh, if you've ever managed uh, people and employees or raised children, I can tell you that does not produce the right outcome. Just give them a pass because you want to be the nice boss. That's going to not going to work out well. So we've given a pass to 217 Chinese firms with over $2 trillion in market cap for 20 plus years. And would you say that they're going to view this rule, this uh, holding foreign companies accountable law with understanding, or do you think they'd be uh, impugnant? I'd say probably the latter. That's pretty much the tone what you would what you get from this article. The law, which applies to all foreign companies listed on U.S. exchanges, but is widely regarded as being directed at Chinese firms, is the latest move from Washington targeting some of the biggest players in China's economy. China's Ministry of Commerce said it opposed the move and will take necessary measures to protect Chinese companies. The United States has continuously... Oh, here we are. We're, we're the bad guy. The United States has continuously abused export control measures to suppress other countries' enterprises. No, it... China, you've just gotten a pass this whole time, causing serious damage to the international economic and trade order and free trade rules, and posing a serious threat to the security of the global industrial chain or global industrial supply chain. I didn't misread that. There's two chains in there. We once again urge the US to stop unilateralism and bullying, give fair treatment to companies from all countries, including Chinese companies. The irony is. This is we're actually doing this exactly. We just haven't done this for the past twenty years. We haven't treated all companies fairly. We've had different rules. No, same rule, just different enforcement of the rule. Basically, we don't enforce the rule the same for Chinese companies, but we enforce the rule just as strong, you know, more strongly, if not um, the strongest, on U.S. companies. But we give Chinese companies a pass. Why does that make any sense? Because for some reason, we've wanted to try and help China come into their own and, and hope that they would open up. Well, um, here it is. They haven't opened up. They're not coming into the, the you know, U.S. world or the democratic world of kind of uh, democracy and capitalism. It's not happening. That ship has come and it's certainly sailed on by. Now, they are claiming to be a victim. While we know that there has already been well-documented fraud, oh, Luckin Coffee, that's like the Starbucks of China. Luckin Coffee, not an accidental cooking of the books, like a deliberate cooking of the books, was now delisted from the U.S. exchange. And there's other cases of this too, of just outright fraud. There's a bunch of documentaries on the fraud going on right now. I mean, there's a bunch of fraud going on with Chinese companies, and for some reason, uh, U.S. certified public accounting firms uh, can go and do their audits of pretty much every other company listed on a U.S. exchange. Remember, they don't have to list on a U.S. exchange. They can have ADRs. They can list on foreign exchanges and have ADRs, but they're listing on U.S. exchanges, but they're not following the U.S. rules. This bill didn't introduce any new, new rules. It just said you have to follow all the rules, just like everyone else. And we're going to give you three years to get your situation in order. Otherwise, you're delisted. But it would require a U.S. audit firm to analyze the books of these Chinese companies. 
Guess who doesn't want that to happen? The CCP. The CCP doesn't want these books scrutinized because the CCP knows, just as we've talked about on the show, that many of these companies are really just an arm and extension of the CCP. Look at all the tech monopolies in China. Alibaba, Baidu, Tencent, the list goes on. Meituan, Dianping, you know, the list goes on and on and on. There's so many Chinese tech, tech platform stocks now these days, and we don't really understand what's happening in the books. We don't. And now, either they have to uh, allow for transparent auditing to happen, or they have to delist. And I think you're going to see a lot of them delist. And that's good, because ultimately... You're protecting U.S. investors from uh, encountering another luck and coffee situation, and you are giving an advantage to firms that do comply with the rules, right? Because there's a real cost to do this auditing, right? There's um, there's there's a financial cost just to have the auditors come in. It also requires you to run your business in a little bit more of a sluggish way. You know, you can't move as quickly when you have to have all these reporting requirements in place, it just slows a lot of things down, right? Whether it's doing deals, um, rolling out n- new investments or business units, or it just, it slows things down. A lot more oversight, uh, more review, and you got to comply with the rules. And and that's part of the reason why, you know, some companies don't want to go public because they don't want to have to deal with the rules. Chinese companies got the best of both worlds. They get to get access to the US capital markets and not comply with the rules. <laughs> <laughs> of course, I'm going to take that deal every day of the week. Well, times are changing. And this was actually passed, this bill, um, with pretty much universal support, bipartisan support, right, from Republicans and Democrats that introduced the bill. It was passed unanimously in May and was overwhelmingly approved in the House on December 2nd. We need to see more of this kind of stuff. It's not targeting China. It's just providing an even playing field it's not even saying we're going to penalize Chinese companies, which is what they're making this out to be. It's just saying everyone's going to play by the same rules, which is how things were supposed to be happening, but for many reasons have not. And the same thing is is what we're seeing happen with Chinese tech protectionism, which we've covered on the show. We had Benedict Evans on many times. And so we're just seeing that the U.S. has allowed our companies to be put at a disadvantage for whatever reason, and, and many times favoring, you know, Chinese companies in their stead. And and that needs to change. And it, it's not a partisan thing, as is evidenced by this bill. It should be a bipartisan thing. It should be a no-brainer. We want our U.S. companies to win. And if you've got a foreign company and you want to access the U.S. market, then you better be hiring Americans. And you better be basing the bulk of your operations in the United States. It's not rocket science. So, leave you with that. Great to be back. Hope everyone has a great holiday. Thanks for joining us on Winner Take All. I'll talk to you soon.